A couple of Fridays ago, it was unseasonably warm. And uh, the boys were home from school. They were outside playing uh, street hockey. I had finished raking up the leaves, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang the Christmas lights. And, uh, I mean, we live in Brampton, so all the Diwali lights are all around, uh, up all around us. And I thought, it doesn't matter if it's a little bit early. And, and, you know, it's really rare when you put Christmas lights on, you don't even need, need gloves. And I'm emptying the gutters while I'm, everything's going so well, Lindsay was even helping me. I've got my wife with me. My kids are playing. It's a warm day. The Christmas lights are going up. I measured it just right so that everything was going. And then I plugged it in. I grabbed my hockey stick. I went out onto the street. Everything was going so well. And then my neighbor said, hey guys, only half your lights are on. But we only have one string of lights. So that can only mean one thing. That somewhere along the line, the power stopped. You know, it's really good to make sure your lights work before you hang them up on your eaves trough with a ladder. So I had to wait a couple of weeks before I could get another set of lights and get time on a cold day. And and to get things all, to get the lights replaced. But here's, here's the truth. There was, there was a, a point in the line where the power stopped. There was a crossroads moment. The church at Corinth, when Paul was first there, was experiencing all kinds of spiritual growth and vitality. They were lights that were shining brightly. And then Paul left, and then Apollos became the pastor, and then Apollos left, and now there's other people who are building on the foundation. But somewhere along the line, the light is not shining anymore. Somewhere along the line, something happened. The church started to be less concerned about Christ and more concerned about fitting in with the wisdom of this world. Less concerned about loving one another and more concerned about what makes us different from one another. And so Paul is writing this letter, writing from a distance, because he's been getting letters from this church. He's been, there's been people who have visited him in Ephesus who came from that church. He's been learning things that have been taking place. And he's been talking to them about worldly wisdom. He's been talking to them about dividing over, uh, over particular leaders of, of the church family. And he's really wrapping up the beginning of his letter here. This is the end of the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians as we come to the end of chapter 3 in the beginning of chapter 4. And if you noticed as Carol was reading, there's three do not statements. There's three prohibitions that he gives. It was the first thing Carol read in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. That's the first command. Then look at verse 21. It says, so let no one boast in men. And then he says, thirdly, in chapter 4, verse 3, oh, sorry, 4, verse 5, it says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Don't deceive yourself. Don't boast in men. And don't pronounce judgment before the time. This is where the disconnect happened for the church at Corinth. This is where the light stopped shining. When they started to focus on worldly wisdom, 
when they started to boast in the different leaders and divide over that, and when they started to trust in their own judgment rather than recognizing that God is judge. So let's begin with the first warning, the first prohibition that Paul gives. Sorry, I forgot to mention the title. The title for today's message is All Things Are Yours. All things are yours. And rather than focus on the the grand, beautiful scope of everything that God had provided, the church at Corinth was zeroed in on worldly wisdom. Rather rather than missing the whole point of what God was trying to do and, and what it means for God to be our leader, they were focused in on worldly leaders. And rather than recognizing that God sees everything and that he's the judge, the judge over all things, they were trusting in their own judgment But here's, we're going to zero in on this first prohibition he gives. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. Let no one deceive himself. Do you realize that we can trick ourselves? Do you realize that we can lie to ourselves? Hopefully we're alert to scams. You know, we get a, a certain email from a wealthy prince in Nigeria that wants to give us millions of dollars. Hopefully we're, we're aware that that's not an email we want to respond to or, or a, a voicemail message claiming to be from the Canada Revenue Ag- Agency and it's a talking robot. Hopefully we're not going to be tricked by those things. Hopefully we're not going to be tricked by false teachers on television or on the radio or on, on the internet we got to be wise to make sure that we're not being tricked by others, but do you realize we can trick ourselves? And this is Paul's command here, let no one deceive himself, because we can lie to ourselves. We can can rationalize things that we know are wrong, but we can create structures and patterns of thinking and, and logic diagrams to explain why what we're doing or what we're allowing is okay. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. In verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Again, this is the end of the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Remember, he's been talking all about wisdom and the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God and how the wisdom of God is like folly to the world, but it's actually the world's wisdom that's foolishness, that's true folly. That's what Paul was talking about all through, all through chapter 1. And so he's warning them in, in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way for 2, 6. It was all about the wisdom of the world and foolishness and the wisdom of God. But he says, if you, if you think you are wise, take a, just read verse 18 slowly. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The biggest obstacle to becoming wise is thinking that you already are. Paul says, if you want true wisdom, admit that you're a fool. See, these are, we talked about this before. These are the hardest people to teach, the people who think they already know anything. And the, the people of Corinth thought, we've got all these people coming and going. We're a travel center. We're a commercial center. And we have all of the wisdom and the wealth of this world. We have it all figured out out. But they were deceived. They were deceived into thinking that they were smart. And Paul is cutting them down to size. He's saying, admit how little you know so that you can really start learning something. 
Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you have all the information, that you have, most importantly, all the transformation that you need. Then he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages in the middle of verse 19. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, in verse 20. And again, this is another quotation, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The first quotation that God catches the wise in their wisdom, this is a quote from the book of Job, Job chapter 5, verse 13. This is a quote from a guy named Eliphaz, who was one of Job's friends. And when Job went through all of the suffering that he went through, Job's three friends came and they sat with him in silence. They mourned with him. They grieved with him. For seven days they said nothing. And if the book of Job ended there, that would have been perfect. They would have done their job. This is what we should do when we're with grieving people. We're just simply being present with them. But Eliphaz and the other guys stopped being present and they started being preachers. And they started to try to explain why Job was going through what he was going through. And so they, Eliphaz said that God catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, Eliphaz was 100% right about God. God does catch the wise in their craftiness. God does see through deception. God does see through the wisdom of this world. He's 100% right about God. But he was 100% wrong about Job. Eliphaz was assuming that Job was going through all of these things because Job somehow was crafty. Because Job somehow was a deceiver. Because he was a liar. And so Paul here is quoting Eliphaz. Not saying that Eliphaz got everything right. But he was right about God. That God catches the wise. He, he knows what we're up to. He sees through the wisdom of this world. And then the second uh, quotation is coming from Psalm 94, 11, that he knows the thoughts of the wise. God knows everything. And he knows that those thoughts are futile. They're like wind. It's like breath. They seem so important. And then they just disappear. God is permanent. God is eternal. His wisdom lasts forever. But the wisdom of this world, God knows that it's just a vapor. It's just a breath. It's, it's futile. God knows everything. And loved ones, what Paul is saying here speaks to us in our present moment right now. You see, the church at Corinth was trying to fit into the pre-existing systems of wisdom. The, the, these pre-existing ideas of here is how the world works according to our philosophy. And the church at Corinth said, well, if we can just cram Christianity into the pre-made box of worldly wisdom, then more people will become believers and will get accepted by the broader world. That's what the church at Corinth was going up against. And loved ones, that's what we're going up against. We live in a world where on university campuses and high school classrooms and everyday life, you have things like evolutionary biology, and it's an explanation. It's a philosophy of explaining how the world works. And sometimes well-meaning Christians can say, well, if we can just cram the book of Genesis, somehow get creation into the box, then we'll be more accepted in the world and we'll be able to reach more people. 
also in classrooms and in HR departments and, and, and in our media today, we have a predetermined philosophy for how justice and oppression works. And many people right now in, in the church are just doing everything they can to try to cram the Bible into that structure and say, no, yeah, we, we follow the worldly wisdom. We can fit inside your box. The gospel doesn't fit in any box. The, the cross transcends all of these things. The world has, that we're living in right now has set up a system for individual expression and what that means for individual autonomy and how that relates to gender and to sexuality. And believe me, Corinth was facing some challenges in terms of fitting into that box as well. And again, many people are trying to cram the Bible into the box to make it fit with worldly wisdom. Paul says, do not be deceived. Become a fool so that you may become wise. Of course, the world thinks we're a fool because we don't fit into the box, but it's because we serve a God who can't be boxed, who can't be contained. So loved ones, do not be deceived by worldly wisdom. And I know if I sound like a broken record week after week, it's because we're teaching through the same book and Paul keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. Don't be deceived. Don't try to fit the gospel into a predetermined philosophical worldview box. Don't be deceived by worldly wisdom. And then here's the application that he lays out for them in verse 21. He says, so... Let no one boast in men. So, that's a, that's a word like, like therefore. He's saying, because we shouldn't be deceived by worldly wisdom, this is the application, Corinth. Don't boast in men. That's the second prohibition. That leads us to our second point. We, we shouldn't divide over Christian leaders. So don't be deceived by worldly wisdom and don't divide over Christian leaders. Let no one boast in men. He explains why. For, and this is the title for today's message, all things are yours. Don't boast or divide on these different human leaders in your church or your church history because all things are yours. And then Paul here lists eight things that fall under the category of yours. If these eight things were in the fridge, there'd be a piece of masking tape with your name on it. All of everything he's going to list is, is ours. It belongs to us. And he, he begins the list. The first three things on the list are three familiar names that he's been talking about in these first three chapters. Verse 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. That's the those are the first three things that he mentions. He says, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men like Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is, which is Peter. You see, there were some people that were very loyal to Paul. And they said, you know, we were there in the early days. We remember when Paul got kicked out of the synagogue and then moved next door. We remember when Crispus first became a Christian, even though he was the ruler of the synagogue. Where we follow Paul. And then there were other people who were saying, no, 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 we, we don't follow Paul. We follow Apollos. Remember that, that other pastor who came after Paul and he was really eloquent and really wise and a great powerful speaker? We're from the Apollos group. And then there was another group 
group being, no, 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 you follow Paul or Apollos. No, 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 we go way back. We're more traditional. We follow Cephas. We were there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And, and, and then other people still were saying, no, we follow Christ. No, I was, there, I was there on the Sermon on the Mount. I heard Jesus himself teach. And so you had these different groups all dividing the church, and they were all boasting. You had the Paul group over here, and the Apollos group over here, and the Peter group over here, all talking about how great their leaders are. But Paul says, don't boast in these leaders. Don't boast in men. The temptation is so strong to boast in human Leaders, if, if a lead, particular leader is attractive, we want to be associated with them because we want to be considered attractive. If they're influential or intelligent, we like to attach our names to them so that we come across as influential or intelligent. If they are courageous, we can sort of vicariously draft on their courage. Their courage. If they're outspoken and, and we appreciate that, we want to be identified with those kinds of things. But Paul says, all things are yours. It's not that you belong to the Apollos group or that you belong to the Paul group or you belong to the Peter group. He's saying, no, you don't belong to this group. No, Apollos belongs to you. Paul belongs to you. Peter belongs to, all things are yours. Paul is saying, You've you've been given it all. You don't have to choose between Apollos and Paul and Peter. They all taught the gospel. They They all taught the cross. So you can include all of them. Because all things are yours. Paul is saying, you're ripping yourself off if you're only focusing on this one little, following this one leader. Of course, listen to Apollos, but also listen to Peter and also listen to Paul. You see, they were, they, were, they were losing out and missing out because they were dividing into these groups. This applies today. Presbyterians have a few things they can learn from Pentecostals and vice versa. People who have a more contemporary expression when it comes to worship can learn from people who have a more traditional liturgical approach. We, we can, when we just branch off into these, into these groups, loved ones, we're missing out on the whole picture. That's what Paul is saying. All things are yours. And then Paul's almost like, it's almost like he's like, oh, I started this list. I might as well finish it. So, because the list gets kind of out of control. So he starts with Paul, Apollos, Cephas. And then he says, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. He's throw, he throws everything in. How is it, how could it possibly be true that in the fridge with our name on it is the world? And life and death, and in the back of the shelf there, there's the present and the future. How can all of that, okay, I understand, like, we're all Christians and they're Christian leaders, so I understand why Paul and Apollos and Cephas, why, why they are ours, but how can the world be ours? Well, keep reading. The end of verse 22, all are yours, verse 23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is 
gods. Let's start right there. What does it mean for Christ to be gods? What does it mean for Jesus to belong to God the Father? Well, he's, he's the Son. He's always been the Son. He's always belonged to the Father in that Father-Son relationship. And so the Son is the heir. The Son, the firstborn Son, owns everything that the Father owns. So if the Son owns everything the Father owns... And then if the Son owns us, you see, look what it says. You are Christ's. So God owns the Son. The Father doesn't own the Father. The Son belongs to the Father is a better way to say it. We belong to Christ. And so everything belongs to us. You see, here's the truth of the gospel. When Jesus came and lived on this earth, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And then he went and suffered and died on the cross as an innocent man. And the reason why he suffered and died on the cross is because every single one of us, we have all rebelled against the creator of the universe. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus was treated the way that we deserve to be treated as sinners. We all understand that. And if you don't, I'd love to talk to you more about that. That on the cross, when Jesus suffered, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God was all poured out on Jesus. He was treated the way that I deserve to be treated. That's what he went through on the cross. He did that so we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. He was treated the way we ought to be treated as sinners so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated as sons and daughters. You see, when Christ's blood was shed for us on the cross, and when Christ rose from the dead, loved ones, we were adopted into the family. We were written into the will. Whatever inheritance belonged to Christ now belongs to us because we belong to Christ. Do you follow? That's what Paul is getting at here. And so what he's trying to do is help the church at Corinth lift up their eyes and stop focusing on the things that divide them and marvel at the gospel. Paul says, forget about Paul and Paulos and Peter. They're all yours. By the way, the world is yours. And here's why. Because you belong to Christ. And all of these things are your inheritance. So whether it's life or death, life, it doesn't matter what happens to us in our life. It doesn't matter when we die because death is really just a gateway into the next life. And so we can live in a time, we can live in a period where people are so afraid, so afraid of dying. Think about how many of our neighbors and coworkers are just so fearful. And we as Christians, we can take whatever precautions are necessary, follow whatever guidelines are required of us, but we're not afraid to die. Because life is ours. It belongs to us. Death is ours. Death is just a door. I mean, it's, just picture this auditorium. This auditorium is kind of dark and indirect lighting. You, you can see it. Can't you see it under the door? Look behind you right now. Look at all the light coming through the foyer. You know, you come out of here, it's a little bit dark. It's kind of bright. But there's something better out there, right? There's coffee. <laughs> there's sunlight. That's all death is. And it belongs to us. 
The present, what we're going through right now, the uncertainty of the future, it's ours. It's ours. It's, it's, it's our property. It's our inheritance. It all belongs to us. So Paul's trying to say, stop being divided into these groups and get united under the reality that everything belongs to us. So then Paul, he, he doesn't want them to be divided over, over Christian uh, leaders. Oh, I'm sorry, there's one great verse here I wanted to show along a parallel cross-reference. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The world, life, death, future, the present. He says, for I am sure that neither, here's, here's, it's the same list, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's given us all things. Amen. Amen. That's worth clapping for. Amen. He has given us all things. That reminds me of a, a book. This is the best book I've read in the last probably 10 years. Uh, this is a book called God of All Things. And uh, if you want to bless someone uh, this Christmas, um, this is a, it's really a devotional book that just looks at all things. Just a, a random scattering of a bunch of things on planet Earth and how when we just stop and look at things like dust or mountains or or rainbows, or flowers, or pots, or salt, or cities. And it's just these little meditations that take you from Genesis to Revelation and really blow your mind in helping you understand what this is our inheritance. And this, there's only like, you know, 30 chapters or so in a 30 of the things that count in terms of uh, all things. So put that on your, uh, on your Christmas list and uh, just allow your mind to continue to be blown by the beauty of the gospel. Now we jump into chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. When he's talking about us, he's Paul speaking as a Christian leader. This is how you should regard us. This is how you should regard Paul or Apollos or Peter. This is how you should look at me or Roy or Jonathan or Chris or one of the staff at, here at the church, one of the elders. This is how you should look at your small group leader. This is how you should look at Christian leaders. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He wants, he wants to be thought of as servants and as stewards. Let's do a little bit of a review of this last section we've been going through. These are all of the different ways Paul has described Christian leaders. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, What is Paul? What is Apollos? And then he says, Servants. All we are is servants. It's the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. It means a, someone who waits on tables. And Paul's emphasis there was insignificance. We're just deacons. We're just, we're servants. We're just, we're serving tables. The attention shouldn't be on us. Then he talked about them being fellow workers in God's farm field. That they were working together to emphasize their unity with one another. Then he called them builders. In chapter 3, verse 10 to 17. And remember, the building is going to be burned. There's a sense of accountability. God is going to inspect the building. And then he calls them servants here in chapter one, verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. But it's a different word for servant. It's not diakonos. It's the word hyperites. 
Hooper means under. The, the original word there means someone who's rowing a boat. You know those old Roman ships where you had the multiple layers of people rowing and the, the oars sticking out the holes? This was the lowest oarsman. That, that's what that word means. In Paul's day and age, it meant an assistant. You know, you, some, you have those executives that walk around and as soon as they get off the elevator, there's that assistant with the clipboard and the coffee and they're there to do whatever the executive wants. That's sort of like that. It's, some, it's, it's the right-hand man or woman. And then stewards. The Greek word there is oiknamos. Oik means house. Namos means ruler or, or rule. The person who's in charge of the household. So he's been mentioning all of these things that leaders are insignificant. They're united. There's going to be accountability. But these last two emphasize authority. When Paul is saying, don't worry about Apollos, don't worry about Peter, he's not saying that leaders are nothing. He's not saying that you shouldn't listen to them. He's, he's not saying that there should really just be sort of like a, like, a, like a joyful ecclesiastical anarchy in the church. No, he's saying this is how you should think about us, as having a certain amount of authority. We're not in charge, but we're assisting. We're serving the one who is in charge. We're servants, and we're stewards. God has entrusted us with some delegated responsibility. You see, a lot of churches, and man, we've seen this. I, I, I'm still a relatively young man, but in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, we, we have seen something very troubling in the church where the pastor has been functioning as a master. And everyone in the church, and everyone on the elder team, and everyone on the staff team, it's basically all about lifting up and supporting the ministry of one person. And we've seen how that has ended, haven't we? This, this whole celebrity pastor idea. And, and those pastors were not functioning as servants. They were functioning as masters. And everyone around them were the servants. And that's totally backwards. We've got to be done with that. The pastor is not the master. The pastor is the servant. But who's the master? Just because pastors and elders church leaders are supposed to be servants, that doesn't mean the congregation is the master. That's a whole other way of approaching church. No. The congregation is not the master. God is the master. So the leaders are servants, and yes, they serve the people, but ultimately they serve God. So these Spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, are supposed to be servants. They're supposed to be stewards. Stewards, it says, of the mysteries of God. This is what we've been entrusted with. The mysteries of God is, is what God had kept hidden all throughout the Old Testament and revealed in Christ. Those are the mysteries of God. So that's what we've been entrusted with. That's what elders and church leaders have been entrusted with. Then in verse 2 it says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. This is, this is the job description. This is the definition of, of success. It's required of stewards that they be found not eloquent, not intelligent, not leading a large group of people, not filled with vision and wisdom, not not crazy in their, uh, in their ability to lead or, or abundant in their gift. No, it's, none of those things are required. What's required is that they be found faithful. 
If you have a, a, the, the privilege or the opportunity to lead in any way, shape, or form in the church, the goal is faithfulness. That's what's going to be judged. That's the gold, silver, the precious stones, not, not the wood, hay, and straw. Have you been faithful to what the gospel teaches? Then Paul says in verse 3, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I hadn't really thought about this until I came to this part of the book, but it, if they were having groups that were like pro-Apollos, that meant that that pro-Apollos group was de facto anti-Paul. And the pro-Cephas group was anti-Apollos and anti-Paul. And so this is really personal for Paul. I'm talking about Paul as I'm preaching, but it never really dawned on me until now that Paul is writing about himself here. He keeps inserting his own name. And there is a story here. Because Paul was being judged, not for his faithfulness, but for his effectiveness. And people were thinking, hey, Peter, I follow Peter. When he stood up in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved and baptized on that day. I'm looking for a leader like that. Apollos, he would wow people with the way that he could speak. I'm looking for a leader like that. Not like Paul. We're anti-Paul. They weren't judging him for faithfulness, which is the true requirement. They were judging him for effectiveness. Some people are faithful and effective. Thank God for that. Some people are faithful, but they're just not effective. And they will receive their reward because they have done what they have been called to do. But Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I don't know if I could say that. I gotta be honest with you. Being judged by other people, I wish it were a small thing, but very often it's a huge thing. Am I alone up here? Like, don't you wish it would be a small thing, what your coworkers thought about you, or what your neighbors thought about how you cut your lawn, or what your friends at school think about what you're wearing, or whatever it is? Don't you wish it were a small thing? So how can we get it so that it is a small thing? Well, that leads us to our third point. Don't depend on human judgment. Don't depend on human judgment. Paul says, I'm done with people pleasing. I don't want to give in to the fear of man. I don't want to be crushed by every bit of criticism that I get. I don't want to define myself based on how I compare to Apollos or how I compare to Peter. I don't want to live like that. I want that to be a small thing. And for Paul, it was a small thing. How did he get to that point? Now with what, what Paul's saying and up until the middle of verse 3, I mean, the world, I talked about expressive individualism, the world would be cheering Paul on. Yeah, who cares what other people think? Don't worry about the, don't be conformed by this world. I mean, that's in our every, that's in shoe commercials and that's in every kindergarten classroom is just be yourself. Don't worry what other people say. People would be fine with that. But then Paul pulls the rug out from under that principle because he says in the middle of verse 3, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. 
And the world's like, yeah! And then Paul says, I don't even care what I think about me! And the world's like, uh, what about the whole self-esteem thing? Paul's like, no, it's not about self-esteem. He says, I, I don't even care what you think. I don't care what I think. He says in verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself. Another translation translates it, my conscience is clear. Paul says, I, I don't have any reason to think I've been unfaithful in, in carrying out the ministry that, that, that has been entrusted to me. I'm, I'm not aware of anything against myself. He says, but I am not thereby acquitted. Just because I, I'm okay, just because I, I'm not aware, just because I have a clear conscience doesn't mean that I'm acquitted or that I'm justified. It says, it's the Lord who judges me. Paul could have just forgotten a time where he really dropped the ball in terms of gospel faithfulness. Paul knows he could be in denial. He could be suppressing legitimate feelings of guilt that the Holy Spirit's trying to produce in him to bring about conviction. Paul says, listen, I, I, don't, tr- listen, I don't trust your judgment. I don't trust my own judgment. Here's how we can stop caring so much about what other people think about us. At the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. And what's the verdict? Loved ones, think about the cross. Think about what Christ has accomplished for us. What's the judge's verdict on me? What's the judge's verdict on you? It's, it's not guilty. It's, it's justified. It's adopted into his family. It's the Lord who judges me. It's when we remember that, when we remember that God is judged, then we stop caring about the judgment of other people, and we stop even relying or trying to find our own sense of judgment or self-worth. Our self-worth comes from what God has done as judge. Then Paul gives this last and final prohibition. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Do not pronounce. Now, some people want to stop there and say, oh, Jesus said, judge and you be judged, and and don't judge others, and no. Paul is not against judgment. I mean, we're going to get into chapter 5, where he's actually going to say the church needs to judge this situation. But he says, don't pronounce judgment, notice this, before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Here's here's the truth, loved ones. There's two things we need to remember when we think about judgment. The first is this. We don't know the end of the story. Don't pronounce judgment before the end of the story. Again, some people are faithful and effective. And at the end of the story, we'll learn that. Some people are faithful and ineffective and you might think, based off their ineffectiveness, that they haven't been faithful in some, reason, some way, shape, or form. But don't pronounce judgment until the end. Some people are unfaithful and appear effective. And we can assume that God is pleased with them and that God is using them. Meanwhile, it's all wood, hay, and straw. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Some Christian leaders... Start fast, stumble early, and finish strong. Some Christian leaders 
Start strong and crash and burn. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. We don't know. We don't know the end of the story and then loved ones. We don't know the whole story. Look at what he, he says in verse 5. It says, The Lord, when he comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. You see, here's when, here's when we cross the line in terms of judgment. Christians are supposed to judge. There's nothing wrong with judging. There's nothing wrong with judging actions. You did action A, therefore the, 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 there is a, a correlated judgment that coincides with the action. We are called upon to judge actions. But where we get into a lot of trouble is when we start to judge motives. What Paul says here, the thing that only God can reveal, the purposes of the heart. Christians can be clear with their children, with their small group members, with their church leaders, with, with anyone. A Christian can say, you did that. And that's well within the realm of Christian judgment. When a Christian says, you did that, and I know why you did that, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Is when we start to attribute motive to actions. I know, why, I know you said that, and I know it was an innocent, innocuous statement, but I know why you said that. I know you're wearing that, but I, I, I know, I, and there's nothing really wrong with that, but I know why you're wearing that. When it comes to questions of why and it comes to questions of motive, that's where we start, that's where we start asking and learning rather than judging. Do you understand? When we cross the line, when we move past action in order to assume that we understand why someone is doing something. We see this uh, really clearly in David's life. Remember when Samuel was sent to Jesse's house to pick a new king and the first king was Eliab, or the first guy was Eliab, and he was so tall and handsome, they thought he would be the king for sure. And then God said in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, he told Samuel, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's the realm of our judgment. But the Lord looks on the heart. Don't pick Eliab. I got my eye on David because I see the heart. And then something amazing happened in the next chapter involving Eliab. This is before David fights Goliath. David had shown up to deliver lunches. Jesse sent him there to deliver the lunches. And then he finds out about Goliath. And then one thing led to another. Look at Eliab. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. See how confidently Eliab is saying, I know what's going on in your heart. Did he know? Why was David there? Because Jesse sent him. Because he did what his dad told him to do. Did Eliab's confident. What? You just left all the sheep? No, the sheep were left with someone else. He didn't know David's heart, but he, he looked at the outside actions and he made an assumption about motivation. 
That's the danger that Paul is warning against here. And then a couple of other cross-references. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 16 says, On that day, Paul says, According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. On that day, all the motivations will come clear. Revelation 2, 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart, sorry, mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. Motivations, heart, all of these, that's, that's what God can judge. So don't depend on human judgment. Don't fall. We can ask questions about motivation, absolutely, but don't make assumptions about motivation. So Paul here is, is so free from depending on human judgment, depending on his own judgment. And then he says something really surprising at the end. He says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. What you would expect, because he's been talking all this time about judgment. He says, each one will receive his judgment from God. But it says commendation. A commendation is, I mean, recommendation, right? We talk about recommendations, like we like something, so we recommend it. Commendation means to praise. Who here is expecting there to be, who here is expecting there to be praise on the day of the Lord? Like when he comes again and we're in his presence. Hands up if you're expecting there to be praise. Only a few of us. Okay, just heads up. There's going to be a lot of praise, okay? Uh, read, read the book till the end. There's going to be lots and lots of praise. All of us are expecting that. But what we're not expecting is that there's going to be praise that's not just going up to God, but there's going to be praise that's coming, that's coming to, to us. Each will receive his commendation from God. That we are going to praise God for saving us just as we sang, but that God is going to pray. And what's he going to say? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the weight of glory. This thought of being praised by a superior. This, this thought of this all-powerful this all being looking at us, looking in our eyes, wiping our tears from our eyes and saying, well done. You, you endured with that wayward teenager. You, you led that, that, that small group through that difficult time. You loved those little children in the nursery. You, you, you pastored that church well done, good and faithful servant. C.S. Lewis says that even from the youngest child, that, that you know, they, they build a tower of, of three blocks and we say, wow, that's a great tower, right? The, the little, the little two-year-old, they can barely contain the excitement that, that a grown-up is praising them, is giving them calm, commendation. And somehow in our sinful nature, that gets all skewed into the fear of man and people pleasing. But there's something pure about it as well. C.S. Lewis says even a dog loves to hear, good boy, good boy. That there's, there, there's something in us that wants to be praised and affirmed. And we, listen loved ones, we lose it when we want to be, when we want the judgment or the wisdom of this world. We want the world to praise us or we want other people to praise us. God says no, one day each will receive their commendation from God. 
God is the judge. God is wise. God knows what's happening in the heart. This is what we're waiting for. And so when we want to be praised by others, understand, yes, there is something that's inherently sinful about that, but there's something that's inherently good and something that will inherently one day be fulfilled. When we praise God and when God looks on us as a father on his little child and looks at what we built with gold, silver, and precious stones and says, well done good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we marvel at the fact that you are planning to praise us. Lord, the one who has done all things well, the one who has rescued us and saved us and redeemed us and adopted us and forgiven us and cleansed us and sanctified us and chosen us, the one who has done all things well, will look to us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a church family whose leaders, Lord, whose, whose elders and, and whose staff directors and small group leaders and ministry leaders, Lord, that we would be a people who are found faithful and that whatever opportunity we have to serve you, Lord, everyone in this room, Lord, that we would be found faithful and that our ultimate aim and our ultimate focus would be hearing you say to us, well done. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name.